Welcome, everybody, to our Thursday deep dive. Today, we're going to be talking about the college football playoffs and the expansion of those playoffs, how that affects Texas, what that actually looks like in the contextual global scale of things, and what this could mean for actual weather patterns. So to get us started, we're going to take us over to Cookie here, who's going to outline exactly what just happened. He's going to give us the exposition. Yeah, so uh, on Tuesday, the uh, college football playoff announced that they were going to go to a 5-7 model instead of a 6-6 model. And what that means is, you know, think about power five. So you had five conferences and they wanted to make sure that the group of five, uh, all the other teams outside of that, had a, had a seat at the table, even though they weren't really competing for the national title. Well, realignment happened, and the Big 12 gained a bunch of members. The SEC gained a few members. The Big 10 gained a few members, and now there's a Pac-2. Uh, and I don't think anybody wants to give a uh, – nobody really wanted to give an automatic seat at the table to Washington State and Oregon State. And I think even Washington State and Oregon State voted for this. It was a unanimous vote. So instead of six conference champions and six at-large participants, it goes to five conference champions. So – the SEC winner, the Big Ten, Big 12, ACC, and then the highest-ranked conference champion from the group of five. So think Sunbelt, think MAC, American, all the different ones. I don't need to run through them. They changed to that on Tuesday. Uh, and remember, this is only a, a system that they've agreed to implement for two years. So it'll be this way for 2024 and 2025. What comes after that uh, is a little unknown, but at least for these next two seasons – there are going to be seven at-large spots in the 12-team playoff. Ian, what does this mean? What are the implications for Texas? So I did the uh, – I ran through what last year's tournament would have looked like with these new rules. But I also took Texas and Oklahoma – Oklahoma didn't really matter – out of the Big 12 and put them in the SEC. I took all the teams out of the Pac-12 and put them in the Big 10. And then I, you know – I played a few, with a few games, but I came up with the SEC getting four teams into the tournament. Their champion and then three at-large teams. And I had uh, Texas, Bama, Georgia, and Missouri all getting in. I think that's going to be pretty normal. Um, any any SEC team that's at like nine wins is going to be borderline. Ten, ten wins and up, you're probably in. So obviously what this means is with seven at-large teams and a lot of them coming from the SEC, it's a pretty big window for Texas to get in. Um, you know, you don't have to win every game. We knew this was coming. When you actually plug it in, it's it's just very clear. Like Texas could go 10-2 and two next year, lose to Georgia, drop another game, make sure they win a big one on the schedule, don't lose to Oklahoma again, and you might be in. Um, then there's also there's scales. If you're the SEC champion, you're an automatic first-round buy, which is a major advantage, obviously, in winning the tournament. But if you're one of the uh, top – I'm going to do some quick math here. If you're, like, seeded five to uh, nine, is that right? Five to eight? Mm -hmm. Yep. You get a home date in your first-round game. And those games are going to be played this year on, I think, December the 20th. We'll have one game. And then December the 21st on the Saturday, we'll have three more games. So there's a number of incentives there that we'll get into more later. But to be able to play a home playoff game at DKR is a big deal. And the athletic director is going to make sure the coach knows this is a big deal. I don't know that you want to lose on purpose and lose the first round by to get it. Although there may be a case based on how this tournament is going to work out. But at the very least, you want to be a higher seed than a lower seed. Like that's a major incentive. Also, you don't want to be a lower seed that has to travel for that first round game. Like there's going to be invariably, this is going to finally happen in college football. We're going to, we're going to have outdoor playoff games in like snow in bad weather conditions. Cause like Michigan finishes second in the big 10 one year, right? They miss the SEC, they missed the Big Ten Championship automatic qualifier bid, but then they're still like a number five seed or a number six seed or whatever. They're going to host a playoff game against whatever poor sap draws them in December the 20th in Ann Arbor in their outdoor stadium, which is a big win for them because that stadium is going to fill out to like 115,000 people. 
and a big loss if that team is from like the Big 12 or the SEC or the Sun Belt. Because I can tell you from experience that Ann Arbor on December 20th is uh, different. <laughs> Paul, I know you wanted you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, so teams that you might take a little more lightly, like if you watched Penn State last year, right? They, in their big games, look like a pretty flawed football team, right? That said, would you want to travel to Happy Valley in late December? And, no. you know, there's no direct flights. You're getting incredibly bad weather. You've got a maniacal fan base that's going to fill out 110,000 people, as Ian said, you know, in the Michigan example. So suddenly teams become capable of punching above their weight simply because of iso geographical isolation and weather factors. And that's something that's not been a, a real factor in college football, except for maybe occasional one-offs, right? What, what that really resembles is the NFL where you actually have teams who are dismissed and it's common analysis of, yeah, the Miami Dolphins and, and the old San Diego Chargers when they were good in the 80s, well, they better win their division because if they have to travel to blank, fill in the blank in, in December, January, it ain't going to happen. And there could be similar analysis in, in college football. So that's a new part of this in which, in which it's going to become more like the NFL. In another way, it's going to become a little bit more like college basketball because you have this tournament – you have this expansion of a playoff. And ultimately, as Joe said, this deal is only for two years. It's provisional at best. I think we all know where this is going, which is a 16-team playoff, which I have mixed feelings about. I'm actually kind of negative on, uh, but I know we can touch on some of that uh, in terms of exclusivity and, and things like that. Um, for me, it's the sheer number of games of a, of a violent sport. You know, the reason you could play a lot of baseball games in Omaha is because you know, your arm gets tired and, you know, you might have to drink a Gatorade uh, after a game. You're not you're not physically incapacitated <laughs> the next morning right. getting out of your bed. So that's the other interesting thing is you're going to have to create. Let's talk about the seeding. So the top four seeds are each conference champion. So unlike college basketball, which I think adopts a much more sophisticated view College basketball understands that the champion of a weak major conference isn't better than the number two team in a loaded ACC in some given year, right? That ACC team will still be seated higher, right? They'll receive more deference because people understand that they're looking at team quality. College football, college football voters and college football fans have a loss column bias. So Ian touched on this. We're going to have to get to the idea of a pro football mentality that when you go 13 and four, you're a really good football team. You don't suck because you lost four games, right? College won't be as exaggerated as that, but we need to get over the idea that a 10 and two team in the SEC when it's really loaded is a demonstrably better team year in and year out than the big 12 champions. Right, And so I have a problem with the auto ranking of the conference champions getting that by. Um, now that can be fooled with, and there could be advantages to being the fifth seed, depending on who you're matched up with. But I don't like the idea that the SEC runner up could be the number three power ranked team in the country. And they're having to play while the number 22 power ranked team in the country from the big 12 is, has a buy and is, and is sitting out because they're a champion. So now, that's one little grievance I have with this model. It's certainly better, better than 6'6", six, six, which was just not sustainable in any way. To your point, who's the Big 12 champion if Texas and Oklahoma weren't in the league last year? Well, even if Oklahoma were in the league last year. Um, I, I don't actually know what Joe is even saying there, but, Utah, I mean, Utah, but well, maybe Utah or Oklahoma State, the runner-up. Imagine Oklahoma State, this team that we just watched, Oklahoma State, is a first-round by playoff contender. Yeah. I mean, that's clearly wrong. <laughs> um, well, and also in, in basketball, and I know basketball is not football. There's physical realities that are different, five men on a court versus 22, et cetera, right? However, no one thinks that if you lose your conference tourney title game or even – don't win the conference in the regular season that you're manifestly superior and, and must deserve a one seed. No one thinks that way. 
because basketball has lived with this reality of seeding a tournament for years. So guess what's back, fellas? Remember the BCS and the formulas and the computers and the power ratings? Well, that was all used to seed bowls, right? Because we've gotten, we've grown dissatisfied with the notion that, you know, BYU could beat a seven and four Michigan team by a touchdown and win the national title, right? Well, let's, let's talk about this. Cause you, you, you brought up a good point. Like, so let's say we've got Georgia finishes second. They, they don't make it uh, past the championship. They lose to Alabama. They're still ranked the the top three in the country. Now they do. I'm assuming by this standard, they're going to get a home field advantage. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, great. So they fought. Right. Correct. Yeah. So they're going to have a home field advantage. All right. Let's now switch over to what you were talking about is the loss column bias. Are we now going to start to see, and and more important question is, how long is it going to take for this committee to start thinking in these terms where we're going to have an eight and four team make it to the playoffs? Is that, how far along does that take? It it seems improbable, even in a 16 team, uh, but there is some value to power ratings over human polls, and there's a discrepancy. Right. And remember, the voters in those polls that we're giving credence to are the writers at your local rag. Yep. Which, which let's just say they vary in intellectual and sports knowledge uh, abilities, right? Uh, I trust, frankly, some of the systems more than the human voters. When it comes well, let's, to eating these playoffs. Let's talk about the human voters. I know I said this in the text. Like my, my concern is that college football is becoming the Oscars. Here's what I mean by that. You're going to have a year like 1994. 1994, you tell me who the best picture is off of these three. You've got Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, and Shawshank Redemption. I don't uh, I, I don't envy anybody that has to choose those things. So well, yes, I didn't the third best film win it? <laughs> See, that's my point. That's exactly uh, my point. So, so to me, it's obvious Pulp Fiction and Shawshank are the two best films. But Right, I, exactly. But that's not the way it happened. Ian probably thinks it's Forrest Gump. Let's be honest. Oh, well, he wished The Incredibles was that year. There's no doubt about that. Although that is a Best Picture winning film. As long as it's not Crash. What's up, Cookie? I, I think there's something to what uh, Paul mentioned in, in a couple different ways. In that, yeah, the, the, you don't want to maybe reward some teams for just kind of catching fire, but that's also a newfound variable. And that, you know, if you lost, like, let's think of Ohio State this past season. They lost to Michigan, a very close game. Um, Ohio State's obviously one of the top eight, seven, six teams in the country. They lost to Michigan, lost to, and didn't make the Big Ten title, and they weren't even involved in the playoff for still having a really great season. Their their expectations and standards and what re- represents good to great for them are at a different level just because that's the air they breathe. But let's think about a team that, you know, maybe they lose two in the middle of the season. Let's say Texas lost to Oklahoma and Georgia in the middle of the season. Sorry, but let's say they did that. And then they win the rest of their games by 20 points, by three touchdowns to start smoking people. Used to, that Texas team wouldn't be involved in the playoff. And now, because of the, the opportunity maybe to sneak in, that team could be the hottest one in the country. And there was, in what used to be those two losses that would prevent them from having any seat, any opportunity, now it doesn't. And I think that speaks to the, the pro factor that Paul was, was getting at. Because, you know, this is a sport that previously emphasized perfection. I think there's been like two since World War II. There were like two national champions who had more than one loss, and one was like a Minnesota team in the '50s, and the other was 2007 LSU. But now, if you look at some of the the, the more recent top 12 rankings at the end of the year, there are two lost teams in there. There are even some three lost teams in there, and some are conference champions, but not all of them were. So the, the, the loss column bias, I think, is something that um, is really worth harping on. It's going to be a huge change just going to 12. Uh, it was a change going from, you know, two to four. Uh, it's somewhat, you know, there were still one loss teams that made it. 
but for the most part, I feel like with the BCS, it was trying to get undefeated teams in there with some exceptions. But now you could have a three-loss team that makes it. But what if that team started 0-3 and, and then just, go, like I said, goes on a heater, smokes everybody by multiple possessions for nine straight games uh, and is, you know, is playing the best football in the country? They have a seat now that they used to not have. So, Joe, to your point, the NFL is purely mechanical. They don't care that you didn't have Tom Brady for five games. Sorry, you didn't make the playoff. However, college basketball says they didn't have Kevin Durant for 11 games. And during that stretch, they went six and five. Once they got him back, they were undefeated. They blew out everybody and they had four top 25 wins. So college basketball is very comfortable saying, well, that's not the same team. We don't care. This was the first time ever in college football history where the committee said, hey, Florida State, we're sorry you're not the same team. And everyone freaked out because it's against history. It's against precedent. It's saying, hey, this, this that's not how it works. And what they sort of said was, well, we want the best product possible. And also it's not fair to give Michigan a first round buy, which is what it effectively was. Uh, so you're going to get attention between mechanical thinking. You either won those games or you didn't, or the college football tradition of if you lose two games, you're garbage. You shouldn't even be in the discussion. Well, we didn't have Quinn Ewers for those two games. Didn't that substantively affect the team? And then when we got him back, we went and blew the hell off of, you know, we blew out Georgia on our home field. Uh, Georgia's otherwise undefeated. Yo. All that sort of stuff. You you guys know how that works and what that could play out like. So are we going to be more of an NFL mechanistic playoff? Or is it going to be the subjective, objective, weird combo that's college basketball? Where you have all these objective measures and margin of victory and how many top 100 wins do you have? How many top 50? What, it's, it's called net. Is that the new thing? Net. NCAA net. evaluation tool. You're going to have to have a football net. But you're also probably going to have to combine it with some element of subjectivity. Or maybe, I mean, they don't have to do anything. I mean, I, I don't like a 12-team playoff, and we're going to have one. So, uh, you know, Ian, what do you think? I, we, have to, we have to hit on the fact that the underlying mechanics of this are that this, this sport and this game and all of its competitive architecture was developed in an era where you watch games live. And if you didn't see them live, then you saw the score and the box score in your newspaper and you read it. Maybe you got a byline like, oh, this Barry Sanders guy ran for 100 yards again. Wow. Who's this again? Right. And we picked champions by the respective writers who hadn't necessarily even seen each other's teams in different regions just voting. Right. And we have this like, even amongst some young commentators in college football today, we have this like amazing traditionalist adherence to that where like you'll still have like younger commentators take up the the cross of like this is how college football is supposed to be you need to go undefeated and that's what makes the sport great that's not what makes the sport great that's not why the sport is popular that only is the case because that's how it had to be now the game is very slowly being transformed into what it has become I mean, what it has become is a TV product, right? And everything about the game is being slowly transformed to reflect that. The conference alignments made no sense for TV in the past, and they're constantly shifting to reflect TV realities. The playoffs made no sense with TV, and they've constantly been tinkering to get it right. They tried the BCS because they're like, hey, maybe the two best teams should actually play before we pick a champion. That was like a recent thing. Right. But then, they had these, but then the computer, they introduced computers because that was the thing in the 90s. Let's have computers. And then the computers were like, oh, put Boise State in the championship game. And they're like, no, 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 no. No one wants to watch that. We're, we're going to lose our shirts. And so we've just been very slowly drug along into this playoff model. Um, and where it's going to go is what optimizes for TV, what optimizes for the TV viewing experience, which means fill in these super lucrative bowl game slots with compelling games that the players actually want to play, make sure the best brands are involved. And this new format 
you say it has a two-year commitment, it'll be gone in two years. Because, like, let, let's talk about Liberty for just a second. Liberty is going to dominate Conference USA for the foreseeable future. And they're going to end up with a compelling case to be included in the tournament every single year. Like, Liberty, if they keep up their current run, they could be in the, in the playoffs more regularly than, like, Georgia or Alabama. That is a disaster for a television product as of now. Liberty does not have the draw right now. Maybe they become the Notre Dame of evangelicals in the future. I kind of doubt it. We'll see. They're going to scrap this. And then, like Paul was saying, it's either going to go to a 16-team format or they could do it like the NFL, go 14 teams and give two teams a bye. And what are those two teams going to be? You could right. do it. I mean, it's we know who it's going to be. You could say, oh, the top two rated teams are in but it's just going to be the SEC and Big Ten champion. Well, let's talk. I, I want to talk about this because something really important here is this idea versus subjectivity versus objectivity, right? This to me, subjectivity is the basis of college athletics. It is the thing that frankly allows us to sit in this room, have these conversations, watch hours and hours of other punditry about this type of stuff. Subjectivity is the core of it. And I'm afraid we, we experimented with the computers, with the BCS, and we got what exactly what Ian was talking about, this concept of, you know, the, the Boise states of the world coming in. So how is this? And I, I want to direct this first to you, Paul, because one of the things that you were pushing for is, is something akin to college basketball. But I think if you have the five conference championships, that's that's taking some level of subjectivity out of it. And then you're you're filling it in with that, ob or sorry, rather the subjectivity is filling it in where the objectivity is the conference champions. Isn't this, in some ways, the best of those two? So I agree with the premise of the the four conference. If we're going to indulge, like you guys know my stance on this from months ago when I I was writing about this ten years ago, but. I think there's two conferences, right? There's the super two. I don't like, I don't even do the P4 nonsense because it suggests some equivalence between the SEC product and the Big 12, right? Putting that aside and understanding that there's a larger fan interest and viewership you need to serve by having other conferences participate, right? And you do need to fill up the playoff. You can't just stock it with the top half of the SEC and the top half of the Big 10 and have them go at it, right? Uh I reject the idea of the first round bye. Okay. I don't mind them being included. That's fine. That's that's all good. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. Your point about subjectivity is the whole basis of, of college sports. I mean, I know very knowledgeable, smart, rational Nebraska fans who will argue till they're blue in the face that Tommy Frazier is a better, better more dominant college quarterback than Vince Young, despite sure. all evidence right, that I can point to of what Nebraska did without Tommy Frazier, of what Vince Young could do physically, throwing the ball, he was faster, bigger, stronger, everything, right? It doesn't matter. That subjectivity holds. And there was an element of fun, stupid fun, but there was an element of fun of, of the regionalism that used to really dominate college football in Heisman voting. Most people don't realize that Heisman voting was entirely, and still has elements of it, but it was entirely regional. Sure. You voted for your guy. If you lived on the East coast, you voted for the Syracuse guy because of the television. Yeah, absolutely. But God help you. If West, if army was good and they had a guy, you know, uh, particularly in you know the hyper patriotic forties, fifties and sixties. Right. Uh, and then, you know, California, you know, you were always, you know, we had this East coast media bias against you, which there was some validation to that. There, there was some reality to that, that you have these exceptional players that no one saw. So it was almost sort of you voted like on reputation or hearsay, similar to the, the, the polling and all the voting. The interesting thing, though, is we're pretending, and I didn't mean to suggest this when the basketball stuff, the objective stuff is still subjective. It's what you weigh and measure and, and think is important. So do you remember the BCS formula had to limit the power of blowouts <laughs> because it was inflating teams that were driving up the score late in games to increase their their BCS standing, Oklahoma being one of the most notable examples, but other teams did it. Algorithms so, are still built by people. That's the algorithms thing. are still built by people. The, the thing, though, is 
can we agree to reasonable assumptions about what a good team is? And the question then is, how much do you want to engage with advanced statistics? I'll give you an example that hits close to home for Texas. And you brought this up, LC. 2022, Texas went eight and five. And we all know that Texas was a score or less away from going undefeated in every game, right? Things break a little differently. Texas is a 10-win team and wins the Big 12, right? By the analytics and power rankings, Texas was a top 10 team at the end of the year. Did they deserve to be in the playoffs? As a Texas proponent, hell yeah. As a person with a little bit more distance saying, I'm supposed to be Mr. Objective Analytics, eight and four making the college football playoff doesn't feel right, right? It, it feels weird, but maybe I need to get over that. You know, maybe I need to adopt the baseball model, Joe, in the College World Series. If you go 36 and 24 in the regular season, doesn't seem so outstanding, but we know for a fact that there's teams who have made the World Series in Omaha with that kind of record, and they go win the freaking thing. So obviously baseball is a different sport, but I think all these, the arguments are part of what makes college football fun, but the arguments should also have some basis in reality, right? We can't have Liberty as a, as a split national champion, right? Uh, because they went undefeated and they didn't make a big bowl, right? But they declare themselves a national title winner. A&M has what, like, 17 national titles they've proclaimed because sure the Sacramento you know, Bee said they got a national championship so the register said yeah. they're the best so yeah I, I don't it's all fascinating but you nailed it LC the subjectivity and the arguments are what makes it so fun it, it does in a way distinguish it from the NFL which ultimately is a cold decisive mechanical product and people have readily acknowledged that the Super Bowl winner may not have been the best team that year, uh, but they're the champ and deal with it. There's always and next this, year. Well, I want to let's take this over to, to Ian and Cookie. So one of the things I, I want to push back on the idea of the buys for the champions. And here's why. Because one of the big challenges that everybody's pushing for is now that we the, the more that we expand this playoff, the less like the less the regular season matters right that's the that's the the big knock on these extended playoffs and i think what we're trying to do here with these buys is to incentivize that regular season to incentivize the games that you're playing on a on a during the regular season to get to that championship i mean do you so cookie you and you and ian here how do you feel about this this buy going into the playoffs i mean we've heard paul's take on it i i I do think that the idea of these incentives is still a really good one. Um, I, I do like as much as there's a flaw with having a buy, and if you're you know Oklahoma State from last year and you win just that one game, of course your whole season gets you there. But I do like the idea of incentivizing championships and winning. Like I, I do like that. And you know when you think y'all both talked about the the regionality of it, like that's what it was you you wanted to beat you know the other teams in the southwest conference so you could tell everybody in the the water cooler or wherever like was, we were the best team in texas and, and arkansas and and that type of thing you were close to all those places and um i, I do like that there's still that type of incentive but i think that kind of goes into ian's point in that you're while it still tries to be a regional sport the people pulling the drawstrings don't care. They're trying to sell to uh, television sets from Washington to Miami. Like it, it doesn't really matter where where the the people are, just as long as there are people watching. So, and I think that also, you know, think about that idea of a Texas winning, an Alabama winning. Let's say Penn State got lucky, and then oh, let's say Dion figures it out just for fun. That protects four of the premier brands that you would want to be a part of this tournament. And again, I think that really just points to the, the, the facet Ian brought up, moving away from interregional or intra-regional rivals and you know competing against people you know and those in your proximity to becoming a national television product. And uh, that's just one of the 
one of the outcomes that they decided to to use to make that happen. I'll see. I am a conservative guy normally. I do not understand the desire to conserve the regionalism of college football. What you're conserving is a what people want to fight for is a system that promotes beating the tar out of crummy local teams, not playing very many good games, and then doing as as little as possible to win a championship at the end of the year. As a viewer of college football, how am I the winner in that? Shouldn't I want my team to play as many good games as possible? Like, why is it better for me for Texas to play like seven ULMs in pursuit of perfection than to go like nine and three and play good teams every week that actually provide me with the full three hour allotment of entertainment, right? Like, I just don't understand this mindset. Like people talk about the greedy TV executives who are so evil because they're trying to give us exactly what we want as often as we can stomach it. But what metric are we using then for, so I get it. So let's say, what metric are we using for the 120 odd college football teams that haven't won a national championship in the last 20 years? What metric is that? Yeah, here's, here's here's where this is pointing us to, right? Is we probably need more divisions. Like I think there are some schools that loved the idea of a playoff they're going to find out in a real hurry that it, the regionalism was better for them because they're going to be a, a little fish in a, an enormous pond, right? There's only so many schools that can really, uh, there's only so many schools that can really compete in a, in a system where you have to play a tournament where you play four or five other resourceful schools to win a championship. And also in, invariably when the, when the courts decide that the, universities have to share this TV money with the football players. There's only going to be so many universities that the TVs are going to be willing to pay. Right. Like the TVs are not going to want to give out all this money to players from schools that don't aren't TV draws. Right. This is going to be a big, this is going to be a big problem for the sport, and it, but it's going to happen. It's an inevitable. So there, there's going to have to be a delineation where we break off. Like what is it? What is the current FBS level? Like 135 teams. Yeah, it's a little under that. Yeah, it's going to have to shrink down to what do you think, Paul? Like fifty less? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a huge incentive to play big time football, right? Oh yeah, there's yeah, absolutely. But it all, but the thing that you're pointing out too is we start. None of those teams are making money. I mean, the majority of college football programs are operating in the red. So you start losing those you're losing opportunities for not only high school kids to play college ball, but then Title IX issues come in, right? You start losing a massive chunk of scholarships of 80 kids. Where where do those scholarships go? Now, I understand we'll probably re-up and we'll have men's soccer or lacrosse, probably those things to, to compensate. But there's a trickle-down effect here that affects not only college football, but really it becomes systemic if we cannot sustain this as a viable sport over the next 10, 15 years. And my worry is that with this, this condensing of powers, which has been in place for a while, but now it's just so overt that we are going to lose, you know, a hundred odd schools off to the side here that may or may not have the opportunity to give some kids the chance to play college football. I think that's a reality we have to talk about at some point. That's definitely. They may, play a, they may play a different kind of college football, right? right? I mean, there's Division Two, there's Division Three, there's the lower end of the G five, right? Uh, it's a it's a it's a different type of college football. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a reordering, but I think there's going to be good and bad. I mean, on the good side, what Ian brought up is the death of regionalism is a positive in the sense that. Texas is now cool with playing Michigan, with playing Ohio State, with these really great games. And think back as a Texas fan, what some of your most enjoyable, most exciting, most like butterflies in your stomach before kickoff games. And a lot of the times it was taking on another power that you don't play very often. 
Yeah. Texas, watching Alabama. a game. Yeah. Watching a game in the shoe. All these types of things are Texas, really. Ohio State. I mean, I was about as fired up for that game right before kickoff as I've ever been for anything. It's and the it's the only game I've ever been to where I didn't think I was going to make it out alive. Yeah, I've I've heard the stories from uh, about Ohio State fans, and that's why I've always held Ohio State's more of an SEC school than anyone actually understands. But uh, actually, SEC fans are pretty nice uh, when you visit them. But uh, I think the interesting thing about that is now Texas or Michigan is not disqualified from losing that game early in the year, and in fact, the winner has just strengthened their resume for the college football playoff, irrespective of what happens the rest of that year. So that's a good thing because I want to watch Texas, Michigan. I mean, I don't know about y'all. I mean, that's, that's more exciting to me than watching Texas, Kansas state again. Right. And you know, that's going to be the fundamental issue too, LC of we need to create a system where look, the NFL works in part, because you've got a lot of billionaire capitalists to agree to some degree to behave like socialists for the good. Well, it is, it is absolutely socialist. And and it's also a closed league. It's a closed league. And that's the key. You can't just declare yourself an NFL team. Right. Whereas in college football, you can just say, we're, we're doing this and we're beating this requirement. We're going to build the stadium and Hey, we're, we're now an FBS team. And you know, that's different, right? There's it's a closed system. So I think it's inexact, but, you know, why would you include a top rank? Why is it a 5-7, getting back to the original show premise, that 5, we know that Toledo or Liberty is probably not competitive. Did you guys watch the Oregon Liberty game? No, but I knew what it was going to be before it even started. That's it. And that's the answer, Joe. From a, from so, so it's not just pure network servicing, right? It's for, It was 45 to 6. It was the easiest money I've ever made as a gambler, right? But no one watched that game. And so to Ian's point, college football has to decide the degree to which they're going to sacrifice some revenue for opportunity. Well, I want to and talk about that opportunity. There's no clear answer on that scale, right? Let's let's look because we've been making a lot of connections here with the pro game. And I wanna if you're watching on YouTube, we've just put up a little chart here. This is this is the number of teams in a league and also the percentage of teams that get into the playoffs. NHL, who has arguably maybe the hardest playoff in all of professional sports, it lasts the better part of 10 months. You're 50% of those people are getting in. NFL, you've got about 37%. The the toughest one to get into, frankly, is NASCAR, around 16%. WNBA is 38%. Women's soccer is 42%. And the NFL, again, is 32%. Baseball is 33%. All right, that's, that's around 30% with the exception of NASCAR for each team. Now, let's look at college sports. This is where things get really crazy. The big dance, you're getting into the, the big tournament. You're around 18% chance of getting in there. Women's basketball is 17%. College football is 9.23%. It is currently the most exclusive playoff system to get into. So again, I, I ask the question, if you're if you're sitting there and you're outside the periphery of those teams, again, there's only been, what, 15 in the last 20 years, 13, that have won a national championship. The majority of them, 90% coming from either the Big Ten or the SEC, what constitutes a good season? What constitutes a winning season? Is it simply your score? Is it simply your record? I mean, how many teams really have a chance at this thing? And is that is how does that affect the fan base now that we've taken the regionality out of it? So let's let's assume like what if what if we had a, a breaking off? What if the SEC and the Big Ten took a handful of other schools with them? like Notre Dame, right, Florida State, if they can keep it together in the court. And they broke off, and then we had another delineation. And then maybe in this new football division, you had, I don't know, a 32-team playoff. Something big, like at the lower level. Is that going to do the trick? Because you almost wonder if that would be better. But no one is going to want to accept it. Because everybody, like if you're at um, Boise State or a Sun Belt Conference, you want to be as a, you want to be attached 
to the big boy football as long as you can, even if you're never actually going to participate for a championship. But if they were broken off in their own division with a expanded, compelling playoff that took place like in the holiday season or something like when bowls take place, would that do the trick? Would that, would people watch that on TV? Would students continue to come to their universities because they want to be a part of that atmosphere, right? Because a lot of this is just about trying to convince college students to come to a campus for an experience when they could just get it all online instead, right? That's like another underlying uh, uh, dynamic here that, that's pushing this and that people are fighting. I, I wonder if that's possible or if it's like all or nothing. If you're not attached to the, to the big times, then it's just not going to work. Well, I think there's a lot of, I think to my best knowledge, there's a lot of similarity with what's happened in European soccer over the last 30 years. And I'm not big on it. I'm not a huge fan, but I just know that there are a bunch of really successful teams in England that were like, huh, you know what? They can pay us a lot more money. So we're going to go do that. And then that led to, you know, others around the rest of the European continent doing that. And they were about to make their own super league, kind of like you were talking about until, uh, a, a, I guess the sport and entity with a little bit more like populist fanatic fanaticism that can put its teeth into the actual decision-making levers kind of pulled back on that. Um, but that's, that, that's just another example of the big boys were about to leave and the, everybody else's, the not big boys said, no, no, that's that you're cutting off our flow uh, of, you know, what allows us to sustain, even if we're in, you know, the bottom half of our league, we're still part of it because, you know, I don't know, Luton Town is still in the same league as Man U, stuff like that. So I don't think the smaller schools, obviously, like you mentioned, Ian, are going to let that go uh, without a fight. Uh, but it may not be a fight they can win once again, like you mentioned, the courts have their say, uh, you know, professionalism becomes the norm and uh, just costs become too much for some of these smaller teams. You know, what's illustrative about that, Joe, is when you reflect on some of these teams and you you hear about it, and I'm not a soccer fan by, or expert by any means. Uh, one, it's interesting. We're talking about Manchester, Liverpool. Working town. Flourishing economic superpowers of Europe in terms of cities or urban centers, right? But what they are is they're incredibly passionate about their product and they built their product up to a certain level of ex excellence that it's hyper profitable, right? And it's, it's taken on its own power. You know, if you look at it from an alien's perspective and you kind of look at who's really good in college football and who's good historically, you go through and go, Texas, oh, that makes sense. Uh, okay, Florida, yeah, I get it. Georgia, Oklahoma? Nebraska? Well, it's yeah, Nebraska for a while. Oklahoma? I mean, the, the deepest fear of all Oklahoma fans, deep, deep, deep down, is that they become Nebraska. Because they don't have an inherent or native base of, of football players, right? They have to go elsewhere. And they historically always went south to Texas and presented a compelling case that, hey, you're going to play big time football at Oklahoma. And from a accomplishment, achievement, pageantry perspective, Oklahoma's up there with Notre Dame, with, with anybody in college football, right? Yeah. Even as Texas fans, we, you, you should acknowledge that. But from a pure economic, just geography, logistics, all these things, Oklahoma shouldn't be very good at football. Manchester... Liverpool, they shouldn't be dominant in soccer. I kind of understand why Barcelona is. I mean, I'd, I'd like to spend some time there as well as a, as a rich guy. But uh, it's just an interesting thing that through force of will or even history, you can still maintain a great football program, right? Even when you don't have the supportive architecture on the surface, just because. And the question then is, can it all fall apart? Right. And so I think that might be the carrot for some of these schools that want to stick around as long as possible of what might be, of, you know, the Miami Hurricanes were not <laughs> a, a dominant force in college football, to put it nicely, in the 1970s. Neither was Florida State, by the way. It was a teacher's college. Hmm. I mean, Bobby Bowden created Florida State football out of nothing. I mean, literally nothing. Uh, so 
Florida Gators were irrelevant to college football until they became very relevant. And that had to do with the demographics in Florida. But it can cut both ways. You could become relevant and you could become irrelevant. And so that's the other force is, are all these schools constants that we're assuming? We kind of assume Texas and Ohio State, you know, will always be good. But did we feel that way about Clemson? Well, this is the question that came up on Monday, right? Is what is going to be the major shift? You're talking about the you're talking about the Oklahomas, the Nebraskas. There was a level of regulation; it was regulatory that allowed some semblance of equality, right? Equanimity amongst everything because of the scholarship numbers. You're not allowed to spend money on certain things. There was there was something more akin to the NFL, frankly. There was ostensibly a salary cap in the sense that you can't have salaries, and now we're moving to an issue where money is involved, where players are getting paid. There's no regulation on that. That that can have an advantage for a, quote, outside school that is on the outside looking in that just the the example that you gave on Monday, Paul, which made so much sense to me was just that SMU team. I mean, bear in mind, they did it illegally, but they they put together a hell of a football team in a, in a very, very small part of, of Dallas and Highland Park and just dominated. So it's totally possible for an outside school to do this again. But my question is, is how is this going to be sustainable? How are we going to be able to keep this going? We already have. I mean, the example exists already, and it's Oregon. Yep. Oregon and Oklahoma State, frankly. I mean, you've got with T-Bone Pickens. I mean, that guy made that school. And you've also got your Phil Knight, right? Those are the two major luminaries that built those programs up. Or even well, I mean, this coming year with Ole Miss. That's, I mean, theirs isn't sustainable, but like, you know, you can have the, the powers that are and always will be like Texas, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan. But then here comes Ole Miss trying to win a national championship this season. Like it's and how long are they going to be able to do that? A lot of it depends on Lane Kiffin. Uh, when he wants to ha- ditch Oxford, but people in Oxford want to make it happen this year. And so they're putting an effort kind of like, you know, Phil Knight and T Boone would, uh, but just kind of concentrating it into one year. I mean, right. we're looking depends on a, oh. it just depends on like, if we, if we go to a salary cap or not, are we going to split TV revenue with players or not? Because if it, if football, if college football goes in that direction and it's not just, I mean, probably there'll still be under the table inducements, even if they do that. But if it becomes less about, because like right now, the, the Nick Saban world of college football, it's about who can marshal the most resources and actually like harness them yeah, and, and get that on the field. And that's, that's what wins college football games is like just total war. Who can be Stalin and get the whole weight of Russia to push out the Nazis, right? You should have. Should have hit that ending clip there, uh, LC. To- yeah, yeah. Sorry, no. I, it's okay. We can edit this. <laughs> this is totally going to be edited. You don't need to worry. Yeah. I'm, I will eventually okay. cut you off. Who, who, who can be FDR? We'll start here. Who can okay, be great. FDR and marshal the weight of America to go rescue Europe? Um, if we get a salary cap, that's not going to be it anymore. It's going to be who can be who's who has the best management, who can be the most shrewd with hires, um, who can you know who can be the best at like managing like front office concerns versus coaching concerns and the, and what makes a great college coach will change. Oh, you're already because starting right now, to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I mean, the interesting thing is we talked about in these other examples through sheer force of will, you can become relevant in college football, yep. right? Or, or sports in general, just like kind of the military thing that Ian said, just by not quitting, like, I used to box. And if you ever fight, if you ever box or spar with someone who no matter how much you're sort of whipping them, they just keep coming. It's actually very exhausting and kind of scary. Right. And, and it's kind of like that in sports, right? In general and, and wrestling, right? There's, there are wrestlers who are not super talented and through sheer force of will, they grind you down because you just can't keep going at their pace and their level. Uh, even if you might be more gifted. The other part is, a lack of commitment, a lack of will, a lack of prudence. We just watched a major conference with incredible history commit mass suicide. Like literally a group of administrators were all looking at each other 
And they all realize, despite their titles and their educations and their all their uh, credentialing, none of them actually understood anything about anything they were in charge of. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. The four of us understood like the reality of college football better than they did. And, and I'm not trying to like blow up our credentials. I'm diminishing them that much. That's my That's, point. I like that better anyway. I mean, because obviously ours are good, but I think yeah. if we can make other people small. It's That's I think it's just going to make other people feel lesser and then you feel better. No, but the, the more important thing is that these are people who literally through lack of will, <laughs> through lack of any idea or understanding or, or any real concept of how things actually work. Uh, they committed a mass suicide as a conference because they, one of them called up an economics professor at Arizona state who didn't understand how any of this works either and gave them really bad advice. And the network said, you know what, you're idiots and you don't know what you're doing. Go ahead and go die. And that's what they did. Now those schools aren't going to all explode because the conference exploded USC and you know other schools have moved on to better pastures, but you know UCLA is at a crossroads. Why would Chip Kelly go take an OC job at Ohio State? UCLA is a, at its from a potential standpoint or resources standpoint, it should be a really good job. But lack of will, whether at the fan level, the alum level, the administrative level, they're simply just deciding not to be good at football and sports in general. Mick Cronin, the basketball coach, is complaining about that. So that was a fear of Texas to, to kick it back to the 1990s. There was a time period when the Texas and the Michigans went through this existential crisis of maybe it's not good that we're good at major college athletics because it's incompatible with our academic mission. And there was a real time period where that was endorsed and sort of indulged at some of these schools. And then they decided, no, actually, in fact, we can be really a good school and then also have a great environment for the students. And also, it uh, turns out our, our educational giving goes up 50% when our football team's good. So let's just keep doing that. So the answer to all of this, and it's been a, a really fascinating conversation because you guys have opened my eyes to some things and perspectives, but ultimately, there's not going to be an easy answer and we don't know. And And I guess the point is, None of this will happen by a plan. It's going to happen organically and by different forces hitting each other in ways that we don't expect. And it could be players unionization. It could be the right to work in a California state if you make players employees. I've coached, I, I coached, I managed and led a team in California for over 18 years. Good luck trying to fire someone there. Oh, yeah. uh, if you don't have years of written cause and all sorts of uh, remedies and things, interventions that you can document. So that's very different from Texas where you can fire someone tomorrow if you don't like their breath. So uh, there's so many different competing forces. And I'd love to pretend we're masters of the universe and say, this is how it's going to go. And this is very important men on committees are planning this all out. And don't you worry, we have our top men on this. We don't have our top men on this, and it's going to happen in a very chaotic way. Well, with that cheery bombshell, <laughs> we want to thank you all for tuning in. Again, this is Inside Texas. This is a little deep dive sponsored by InsideTexas.com. We appreciate you taking the 53-odd minutes and, and enduring this with us. The truth of the matter is, is we don't have answers, and we proved that just now.